That was a lot of ASMR to go through. Yeah. Pretty simple. Yeah, it's, it's almost identical. If you are. I mean, the <laughs> listeners can't probably even tell which was which. Welcome to another episode of Black Frasier. I'm Phoebe Lynn Robinson. And as always, I'm joined in the studio by my co producer, my editor, the love of my life. Yeah, okay. I'll be nice. Yes. <laughs> It's a nice episode. It's a serious episode, so I don't want to be talking yeah. about your freaking bangers and mash. Mm-hmm. Your Scottish eggs. Your <laughs> scotched eggs, but. Oh, scotch eggs. Scotched. Sco- Edie. It's not Scottish? Scotched eggs. Or scotch. Maybe it's just scotch. I don't know. Scotch eggs? Mm. Okay. Is anyone Scottish listening to this? <laughs> My pickled onions. <laughs> it's richard madden you know star game of thrones listening to this can richard if you're listening first of all great job as rob's now fantastic job good job looking at maps (laughs) what's it called when you study maps cartographer i wonder if he had to go do (laughs) Like take a lesson and courses. Yeah. It it really was like season one. There was so much action. And then it was literally he was like my mom when my parents would do like a road trip and she like just print out something from MapQuest <laughs> and we got Oh my lost. god, my mom used to print out Google Maps. Yeah. How I, that just like triggered me back then of us going on holiday as kids and she would even though we had smartphones because it was around the <laughs> iPhone release times, she would print out the directions on Google Maps. Mm-hmm. I know, isn't that wild? Anyway, Richard, mate, do Scott do Scots call each other mates? Mm-hmm. I might. Wait, that was supposed to be a Scottish accent. <laughs> Again, though, I think Jamila was right. This podcast is just a platform for you to try out different accents. <laughs> it's so hard. It's just a like, That's what. Sorry, anyway. sorry for everyone listening in Scotland. <laughs> okay, we li- literally have six listeners from Scotland. Let's be real. <laughs> They're busy. Going to Edinburgh. Edinburgh. Um, but let me know, is it Scottish eggs, scotched eggs, scotch eggs? I had one. Regardless, it was pretty good. Yeah. I used to like the ones before I turned vegetarian. Yeah. 
So anyway, instead of talking about your dick and balls. <laughs> Why do you have to say it so loudly? I'm keeping it classy today, you guys. Luckily, my mother listens to this podcast. No, she does. She does. Not. She does. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. What does she think? Be honest. I haven't spoken to her this week. Okay. I sent her all the links last week, last Sunday, and I didn't get to speak to her this Sunday. So she was like, what, can you tell everyone what she thought? this podcast was at oh, first yeah so <laughs> i got a text from my brother and he was like oh i hear you, you've been busy as my as our mother puts it editing videos for phoebe's fans <laughs> <laughs> so cute i mean she was she's been around of before the age of podcasting so <laughs> i don't blame her for not understanding it but also yeah she has an ipad she should know but you know what your mom is just, she's beaten to her own drum, okay? Exactly. But I'm glad I cannot wait to hear what she has to say because she has no filter. No, exactly. So if she hates it, she will tell me that she does not like it. <laughs> and I'll be like, okay, well, this FaceTime's done. <laughs> you can just leave the scene and I'll, yeah, just, I'll, I'll, walk just, out. I'll just carry on talking, yeah. I'll undo our 5G, so like the... The video quality goes Just down. dips, yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, you guys, I'm very excited about today's episode. Me too. Because, you know, last week was the first presidential debate. And that are was a still hot piece of shit. Are we still using the term debate? Yeah. Yeah, because that really was not a debate. Yeah. It was really just a Real Housewives reunion. It's like if they did a Real Housewives at a nursing home and instead of giving the patients their medicine, they gave them Adderall. <laughs> and then just told them to crosstalk. Yeah. <laughs> Make sure you don't have an upper lip and cross the fucking talk. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm... I never, I was like, I need to invest in fillers because I, mm. I need to pass them out to people. Yeah. It's getting wild out here. <laughs> I did think Joe Biden's forehead looked like he had some work done on it. You know what? Joey B really was put through the ringer. Let's yeah. be honest. Yeah. He I mean, he did the best he could with that fucking shit show. I don't think I would have lasted, was it 90 minutes sat opposite? Or stood even. I wouldn't have definitely not lasted ninety minutes stood near Trump. But yeah, I would just be like, "Are you done?" I'll just just like put my AirPods in and just <laughs> <laughs> just started listening to something. I'll be like, you know what? I'll wait. You yeah, finish yeah. whatever you have to say, then I'll say what I need to say. You take the first hour. I'll fill the last thirty minutes with policy. Yeah, I'm like, just like, are you done talking? I would. Are you yeah. done talking? Just yeah. let me know when you're done. God, Gosh. I feel sorry for the person that has to transcribe that into like text because that must be a nightmare to deal with. I mean, they deserve a raise. Yeah. They I would say they deserve equity in the closed captioning company they work at. You know they fed it into AI and it just went like <laughs> I can't, I just can't. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so last week's debate really got us down i think it got the conch that's country down i mean our plant turned like dark green I from know. listening to it <laughs> tracy orchid ross was like i'm out of here i can't listen to i love people talking to me but this i'm yeah. just ending it so she 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 closed her leaves down 
And then our succulent, what did we decide to name our succulent? Succulenty Kravitz? Yes. Yes. He was like, I, I retire from rocking. <laughs> you get no more hits out of me. Yep. But anyway, so the point is last week was a complete piece of shit. Mm-hmm. And, you know. <clears throat> <laughs> One second. Uh, oh, that was a lot of ASMR to go through. Yeah, I don't know what happened, <laughs> but I just my life living with you is like a twenty four seven ASMR session. Does it turn you on? No. Does it turn you off? Yes. All twenty four hours of it. Twenty three and a half. So when's the half hour that you're turned on by it? When you're asleep and I'm asleep. <laughs> <laughs> so when you're deep in REMs. Yeah. Not the band. No. But also, if you want to get deep into REM, Michael Stipe looks good for his age. He really does. Is he vegan? Must be. Yeah, he must not have, like, mm. had any... Well, he used to be a very nervous performer, right? He was, oh my god! Massive, massive stage fright, and that's why he used to paint his the stripe across because that would get uh, him into a character. That's cute, but yeah, he looks great. I'm sure he's using some K beauty products, Korean beauty oh, products. Oh, okay, thank you. He's not using the garbage ass fucking shit that's made here in America. No, that's okay. like Sally's face. What's cream. Sally ever done to you? J- uh, Janice's face cream. He's not using Janice's face cream. Sheila's. <laughs> Sheila's. <laughs> He's using proper freaking K beauty to stay mm. young if flawless. But back to the point. I was going to say is last week was like horrific, which is why I'm so excited. I feel like whenever something happened, this, I don't know what happens with this podcast, but I feel like it's very in tune with the universe and each episode. That ha- it happens at the perfect time it's supposed mm. to happen, if that yeah. makes sense. So I think coming out of the haze of just, you know, seven months of the quarantine, you know, <clears throat> number 45, basically telling white supremacists uh, to stand by. Yeah. You know, because he's going to like hit them up on their beepers, I guess, to enact <laughs> some violence. T- don't, no, don't yeah. tell people to stand by. Tell them that they're a piece of shit. So I think because all that was happening, to have this conversation with today's guest feels like perfect timing and we need to just talk through it and feel a little better and and recognize that we have lots of work to do, mm-hmm. but yep. that some work has been done. Yep. Um, so, of course, I'm talking about today's guest, Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, halt a racist. That's not how he says it. No, no, he really does not. But he has a journal out today. It's a how to- today. Yes, how to be an anti-racist journal, Ooh. where people can, you know, be like Benjamin Franklin when he was writing all his important docs. Mm-hmm. Get out their pens, quills. Yeah, their quills. Writing cursive, mm. dearest Mrs. Franklin. I don't know his wife's name. You're just sending out all these letters to people and they're like, why is it addressed to Mrs. Franklin? <laughs> What's her first name then? 
I don't know. Okay, we've got to look this up. But I it, so there's a journal that's out. So basically, reading is great. Obviously, I have Oops. an imprint. I I've written two books. Um, but you want to also take like what you absorb from reading, process it, make it reflect on your life, and write it down yeah. on the page so that you can really figure out what actions you need to take. Oh, Deborah. Hey, Debbie. Oh, that's cute. Her name is, or is it Deborah? Have you ever met when women call themselves Deborah? I'm like, calm the fuck no, down. No, never. It's Deb. Oh. I mean, you can say Deborah, but it's, I'm saying it's Deborah Reed Franklin. I used to know somebody whose last name was Troth. Troth? Okay. But it's cute. spelled Troth. It was Troth. Uh. It definitely was Troth. <laughs> but they called themselves Troth okay. to make it sound posh. Oh, I like that. What's the first name? Well, I guess you can't do the first name. <laughs> I'm like, what's the Soch? <laughs> Address, date of birth, the. Uh, postal cold? Cold? What is it? Cold? <laughs> Postal code. Is that what you call in the UK? Postcode. Postcode. Yeah, I guess it's like. I don't know why it's a zip. Zips are what you're on your clothes, not on your street. Oh, she was married before Benjamin Franklin. Scandalous. Damn. Wait, hold up. She was married to John. We're talking about Deborah Reed Franklin, married to John Rogers, seventy twenty-five. Separated, seventeen twenty-five. She she was like, I can't even take a year of your bullshit. I'm <laughs> fucking out. You sure you didn't die? No, she was just. It says separated. Let's go wow. to marriages. We're going through a deep dive of history here. Damn. Hamilton ain't got shit on us. <laughs> yeah, Lemonwell, did you do your research? <laughs> do you know about Deborah Reed? <laughs> 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 Oh, boy, this has really gone off the rails. I think we should get back to the topic at hand. Okay, I just want to see. Okay. So she first met Benjamin Franklin when he walked past her home one morning. He had just moved to Philly to get him a job. Oh, this is wild. Okay, so when Franklin was unable to find appropriate living accommodations near his job, Reed's father allowed him to rent a room in the family home. Mm, and he slept with his daughter. Okay, so listen. So Franklin proposed marriage. However, however, Deborah's mother Mary would not consent to marriage, citing his pending trip to London and financial instability. Dang, this is like crazy rich Asians when the mom was a hater. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. So she ended up marrying some whack ass dude. Oh, he's a Brit. Okay, Joan Rogers. Jolly Roger. Uh, so she agreed to. He's apparently called um sweet talking, and he had, he could not hold a job. Damn, and incurred a large amount of debt before their marriage. Double Ooh. damn. This is this is crazy. Okay, this is why she peaced out. <laughs> I just farted. <laughs> that was an excited. You got so excited, you farted. <laughs> Oh, God. This is wild. Okay. Four months after they were married, Deborah left <laughs> Rogers after a friend of Rogers visiting from England informed her that he had a wife 
back in England. Wow. Men are fucking wow. trash. Yep. How dare you? Doesn't count if it's in a different postcode. Was that what he's going by? What I'm trying to figure out, this bitch had two jobs, had two wives and no job. Mm-hmm. How'd he make that happen? By going on the open seas for all those years. <laughs> <laughs> like, peace out. I've got nothing here. I'm sailing to America. <laughs> he's like, bye, Rachel. I don't know, but his... <laughs> Bye, Rachel Rogers. <laughs> <laughs> See you at four score. Um, all right. That was a wild journey. That was some tangent. <laughs> but it all leads up to it. No, this is a perfect segue because it's about knowing your history so that you can be anti racist. I don't know why you're yelling at me. <laughs> I'm sat like five feet away. Stop yelling at me. <laughs> you guys, the point is, Ibram X Kid, he has a journal out that we can all use in our lives to really sort of think about our behaviors and our thoughts that are contributing to systemic racism, the patriarchy, anti-blackness. Um, very excited to have him on the show. Before we get to uh, the interview, just want to let you guys know, we got some merch. Swag. We have swag. Thanks in advance. Well, not in advance. Thanks. Just thanks for buying the merch if you already have bought it. And if you're about to get it, thanks in advance for getting it. <laughs> Ooh, we got there, but it was a bumpy road. <laughs> that was like going over cobblestones. <laughs> Deborah Franklin, hold on to your knickers. We going, going, over, over... going over cobblestones <laughs> with your exhaust that had already started to scrape the ground. That's what that was. Excuse me, I got caught up in Deborah Franklin's. Deborah. <laughs> oh my God. I got caught up in her journey for yeah. a second. Um, I just want to say we have merch. Go to PhoebeRobinson.com, click on the merch. There's a t shirt for $30, sweatshirt for $60. This is paying for the podcast. We're excited. Sizing is small to triple XL. We want everyone to be able to wear the merch. So go get you some. Okay. Was that a good ad, babe? It was one of your better ones, yeah. You guys are really in for a treat. This is a fantastic conversation. We talk about black feminism. We talk about policy. We talk about Breonna Taylor. We talk about um anti-racism theory there's a lot that we get into and we answer i feel like six or seven yeah, audience there's a, questions there's a lot of audience questions today great questions without further ado here's my conversation with dr ibram x kendi hi ibram hey, <laughs> i'm good how are you thank you for taking the time to chat today um i'm sure you are just chatting 24 seven, but you have so many wonderful and wise and pertinent things to say. So I'm glad you could join me on black Frasier. Um, we have a lot of audience questions, like people just like sent so many questions. in. so we have kind of a more expanded audience question section. But before we get to that, I feel like so much of this podcast has been about sort of processing 
the turmoil that the country is witnessing as a whole right now on social media, on TV, and in their neighborhoods. Uh, it feels like everything is at sort of a high peak in terms of just intensity and not being able to sort of have like any sort of downtime. And I think coming off the heels of last night's uh, presidential debate, I think a lot of people are just feeling even more enraged and sort of like, what, where is this country going to go? Um, so we have a lot to talk about today. But first, I want to get to sort of how you feel things have sort of shifted or progressed since your fantastic book um, really just took off like wildfire again this year. Um, and you've been in demand and you've been giving all these talks and sort of really breaking down a lot of this theory that I think a lot of people are are learning for the first time. And I'm glad that they're learning this. But now that we are, you know, in seventh month of quarantine, how are you feeling like your work is being received? And do you notice a shift in society, even if it's incremental towards something that's more positive than what we're experiencing right now? So I, I think the term anti-racist and even anti-racism has become almost like a household term mm-hmm. now. That's certainly a shift. And it's certainly a shift in the sense that you have many people who realize it's, it's, it's not enough to say they're not racist. Um, or even many people are realizing, what the heck does that even mean to be not mm-hmm. racist, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and so, but I, I also think, and this isn't necessarily the result of, of my book. I mean, this is part of a, my book is part of a larger sort of community of writers mm-hmm. who, and, and even activists um, who have been able to demonstrate the persisting and, and the pervasive sort of ness um, of racism. And it's caused Americans, particularly at the height of demonstrations this summer, to have a, a critical mass of awareness. I mean, you know, at, at its height, three out of four Americans, according to one survey, was saying racism is a big problem. We've never seen that level of awareness. And, and so as a result, you know, there were, certainly was a counter uh, backlash to, to those of us who were doing that type of work and, and bringing that level of awareness and that's the period we're in now, um, in which certainly there's tremendous backlash, um, you know, coming upon our work so that, you know, they want propagandists, particularly racist propagandists, want Americans, particularly white Americans um, and, you know, others to, to believe yet again that the problem is those black and brown people and, and not racism. Yeah. And so I'm wondering in terms of, you know, what I've noticed a lot on my end, whether it's social media, or just, you know, talking to people and passing is there's a lot of while I think it's wonderful that people are reading books and sort of getting that education. I feel as though some people think that that is where the work sort of ends, right? You read the handful of books that are sort of recommended to you. You learn a few more terms. You sort of maybe do a little bit more internal work, but then there's no sort of change in terms of their everyday behavior or actions that will help sort of get rid of the racism that 
we are all experiencing or not all, but a majority of people are experiencing. And so I'm wondering, um, what is sort of the disconnect that you might think that some people feel where they go? Well, I read the book, so I'm done. Why do you think it is maybe hard for people to then translate that into action? Well, first I, I, it's, it's, um, I think that concern is even a reflection of just really the achievements that we have actually made. And what I mean by that, if somebody would have told you and I that, you know, just an incredible critical mass of of Americans were reading books on racism a year ago, I would have been like, no, that's not gonna happen, right? And now it's taken for granted. So I don't think we should necessarily take that for granted that that people are reading these, these black writers you know, at levels that they possibly have never done in, in American history. But it's absolutely the case that that it's just not enough to, to just simply read a book and think you've done something. Um, and, and so that's how and why we're trying to, we're at the next really stage, which is to transform awareness into action. And, and, and I think for me, what I'm saying to folks is, once you see racism as a big problem, the question is, are you willing to support the big solutions to this big problem? Um, because we don't want the, I'm aware of racism, but I'm not going to support any solutions that's going to eliminate it to become the new normal. Um, and, and that could certainly happen if it hasn't already happened. So what do you think are some of the big solutions that people really should take to heart and see how they can play a role in acting those out? Well, first, I think when I say big solutions, what I mean is we should be thinking of what policies can eliminate poverty and Black and brown people being disproportionately poor. Well, basic income. Um, You know, why can't we support basic income programs, a federal basic income program that could eliminate poverty if we control prices? We should be thinking about what could possibly eliminate black people and their black people being and their votes being suppressed? Well, we should be supporting not only automatic registration, not only you know uh, the making sure that that all voting days are federal or even local holidays, not only that the state provides people with salaries sort of relief so that they can leave their jobs or not go to work and still make ends meet and go vote. But then people can be able to vote in every way they can make. So they can go in person, they can call on the phone, they can vote online. You know, that would make it extremely hard for people to be like, let me just, you know, not have a lot of working machines in the Black precinct. You know, that would that would make that very hard to suppress sort of Black vote. Yeah. So I want to I want to back up a little bit Um, for anyone listening who hasn't read the book yet. Go read it. It's so fantastic. But you share so much of your personal story in the book, uh, which I think is what has resonated with a lot of people. Um, And so I would love if you could sort of speak a little bit about how you got involved in doing this work and sort of the stuff that people have not been seeing for years that so many activists and authors and critical thinkers like you have been doing. What inspired you to make this sort of your life's work? I, I think it's a combination of 
you know, since I was really young, particularly in high school, wanting to understand what or who was the problem. So I knew there was a problem. To be Black and young in the 90s, you know, was a decade in which there clearly was a racial problem, but, but, but I didn't necessarily know what the source of that problem is. And so really it's, it's almost this personal sort of search to, to figure that out, combined with some very critical teachers. And whether those teachers are, you know, teachers that I, professors that I had, or whether those teachers were friends, you know, uh, particularly I, I mentioned two Black feminists um, who were critical in, in, in my sort of development in, in graduate school, whether he was the teacher of experience. Um, and, and really, I sort of try to chronicle that and, and I, in, in, in a way sort of chronicle my journey and how all these teachers and experiences were really putting up mirrors to myself. And, you know, whether it was a mirror of my anti-Blackness, it was a mirror of my patriarchy or homophobia, it was a mirror of their intersections. And, and, and the only thing that I was able to do is just acknowledge the ugliness mm-hmm. and, and want to be different. Yeah. And I think, you know, what I love and appreciate so much about this book is that there is this honesty, honesty from you in terms of like, you really had to do the work to unpack the things that you were just sort of the anti-blackness that you were just sort of indoctrinated with from society. And I think it's something that we, everyone has to do, I think, in order for things to get better. And also so many of us may walk around not even realizing that we have these sort of views that are destructive and hurtful not only to ourselves but to others. And so I'm I'm wondering um if maybe you could share one personal experience where you were just sort of like, yeah, my anti-blackness, this is something I gotta resolve because I think we all I think we all deal with it. No matter the race you are, like you you are taught these things about black people that are harmful. And I remember like even growing up as a kid, I would just watch the show cops. Like that was just entertainment. Like, and I didn't really understand that I was just consuming black bodies, being harmed, being slammed to the ground, being presented as criminals. And I just was like, Oh, this is fun entertainment and LOL. And I would just like on Friday nights, eat dinner and then watch that and not realize how horrific that was. Yeah. I think for me, really the book, sort of opens up how to be an anti-racist, opens up with a speech that I gave as a, as a, as a high school student mm-hmm. for an MLK competition. And I thought I was so woke and radical. <laughs> but, but essentially, the speech was me expressing all of the ideas that I thought, all of the things that I thought was wrong with Black youth at the tail end of a decade in which as a black youngster i was constantly told there was something wrong with the group that i was a part of and so in the speech i said you know black youth don't value education you know i said that you know black youth continue to have too many babies i i talked about black youth as being dangerous and and it was literally a litany of all the things wrong with black youth on a very day because it was this high profile you know, Martin Luther King competition with all these talented Black youth were celebrated on the very day in which I should have seen all the great things about sort of Black youth. And and so in many ways, the, the journey begins there. It, it begins in this sort of, you know, abyss of anti-Blackness that I was shoved in 
by society. Um, and, you know, just sort of, I think we've all experienced that where you think what you're saying is so profound and you're so on the right side of history. And then you realize, oh no, I'm speaking horribly about this group of people and I'm flattening them to these stereotypes instead of celebrating sort of the multi-dimensions that they are. And I'm curious as to, you know, what was sort of the biggest transformation through this journey of sort of ridding yourself of your own anti-Blackness? Like what was maybe the most surprising aspect of it or the most enlightening aspect of going through that journey? I would say two things. First was mm -hmm. intellectual. Um, and, and so when I was researching for Stamp from the beginning, which was the history of anti-Black racist ideas, I realized through through studying the producers who are almost always white of of, of these of, of these anti-black uh, racist ideas, I realized, uh, particularly starting that study in slavery, that these particularly slaveholders were producing and mass circulating these ideas of anti-blackness first and foremost for Black consumption. Mm. In other words, I realized these white folks were trying to teach Black people that they should be enslaved, that they're worthy of enslavement, that they are cursed forever to be slaves, that somehow American slavery is better than African freedom because they were so barbaric and now they're being civilized. That they were teaching and, and you know, at least trying to teach Black people these ideas, because if those, if Black people ended up believing them, then Black people would not resist mm -hmm. <laughs> because they believe they should be enslaved. They are inferior. This is better than, than, than African sort of freedom. And so in other words, I just, it was fascinating to me to see the effect of anti-Blackness on Black people. In other words, it causes them to go after, to either allow the status quo of, of, of Black people being on the lower end of disparities to just seem to not see that as a problem or to actively blame Black people for that problem, mm -hmm. um, as opposed to seeing that there's nothing wrong with Black people, there's nothing wrong with themselves, and there's everything wrong with racism and white supremacy, and thereby you know, using their power and using their time on earth to challenge that. That was just fascinating to me that that um, really that source of anti-blackness, you know, being fed to the black mind to prevent black people from resisting. And another thing very quickly, I remember when I was in college, a senior in college, um, and I sort of, you know, this was um, when I just was really not a fan of white people, to say the least. <laughs> uh, and I, I wrote this sort of screed in my uh, student newspaper, and I was also interning at the local Tallahassee Democrat. And, and I, re I remember a bunch of white people um, in town being very upset about my column in the fam Ewan about white people. And then they saw that I was writing for the Tallahassee Democrat and interning there because I needed that internship in order to graduate. So the black editor, of the Tallahassee Democrat brings me into his office and basically starts berating me or challenging me on some of the ideas that I had about white people in that piece. Um, 
And he didn't really get too far because I was defending myself uh, in those ideas. But then at one point he switched gears and, and he said that, you know, you know, I hate it when I get pulled over and I get treated like I'm one of them niggas. And that moment was crystal sort of clear for me how you had a Black person. So first of all, I was trafficking in anti-Blackness. I didn't think there was anything wrong with it. Mm -hmm. And it, it really took another Black person who, again, was not upset at those racist white police officers <laughs> for pulling them over. We're not, we're not seeing that as a problem of racial profiling, but instead was blaming it on Black folk who weren't even there, mm -hmm. right? That, that, you know, and, and it put up a mirror to my own ideas, you know, and, 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 it, and it caused me to, to realize, you know, just how problematic my own anti-Blackness was. And that was a pivotal moment, you know, in my life. Yeah, and this makes me think about, you know, because I remember reading that in the book and I was just like, oh my God, I can't believe you said that. And it made me sort of think about respectability politics, right? And I'm wondering, what do you think is the relationship between anti-Blackness and respectability po politics? Um, wow, where do we even begin? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I don't, again, I keep referencing really the white sources. Mm -hmm. So... This the whole concept of respectability politics, or in my sort of book, I, I call up the persuasion to really specify, you know, what what the, the, the strategy is really seeking to do. You know, it's white abolitionists who taught black people as early as the 1790s that you had to, meaning these white folks, saying to newly freed black people, it's important for you to act in a respectable manner before white people. Because if you act right, they'll think right. And they'll think highly of you if you act highly. And if they think white people, if white people think highly of black people, then they will end slavery. And it was this perspective that that it was that that it was up to black people to form, to act in a respectable, upstanding manner all the time around white people, basically to be perfect. Um and that was how we were going to undermine racism. But, but all along, that idea that, again, white people fed to Black people was based in anti-Blackness, was based in a racist idea, because it basically presupposed what these white folks were saying, that if you would only act better, they would think better of you, which mm -hmm. is essentially saying that you are partially responsible and your behavior or misbehavior of why white people think you're inferior. And to suggest that somehow black people are responsible for white people's racist ideas about us is to suggest a racist idea. And so that's the striking thing about respectability politics is it is a strategy to undermine racist ideas that's based in racist ideas. <laughs> um, and we wonder why it's failed. And then if somehow, some way, we're able to act in a perfect sort of manner around white people, then they just call us, as they call Barack Obama, extraordinary. Mm -hmm. You're not like those ordinary, inferior Black people. You're an exception to the rule of Black inferiority. 
Yeah. Oh. And so, you know, he, us having this conversation and, and sort of talking about respectability politics or this notion that black people are in, inferior and they only have to, if they only just acted better, then things would be better. What I really enjoyed about your book was you sort of talking about the, not sort of, but directly talking about the policy side, which is actually going to make a lot of change. And I feel like a lot of people, myself included, you hear the word policy and your brain goes, oh, I'm not smart enough for this. This is too difficult to understand. I think I'm going to have to tap out or this is above my pay grade or what have you. And so, you know, so many questions I got from people throughout this podcast is sort of like, how can I get into policy? How can I really sort of like help change things? So what are some things that you would say to people who are listening right now who acknowledge that, okay, policy is this huge issue that I do have to start being more well-versed in and then incorporating that into my everyday life in order to help change things for the better? Well, let's let's talk about sort of the Breonna Taylor mm-hmm. sort of murder. And, and I, I want to sort of talk about all of the different policies mm-hmm. that not only led to or contributed to her murder, but then also contributed to the people who murdered her, presumably getting off. So obviously, you know, the policy that puts drug enforcement units in majority Black, particularly working class and working core communities, that that's where the, quote, drug crime is. Even though we know that white people are just as likely to sell and consume drugs, even wealthy white people. So, so that's a policy decision of, you know, of, among a metro or city police force. Let's, let's put the drug enforcement units in those communities. And um, because those Black people are the criminals, not the people who's slinging cocaine or, or marijuana. Um, secondly, um, the policy that allows our officers to basically have a no-knock warrant in which, you know, even though um, one um, witness who changed his story claimed that the officers announced themselves, more than 12 witnesses have said the officers did not announce themselves, including uh, Brianna's boyfriend. And, And so, but that's a policy that's disproportionately used in brown and black and and certainly poor communities, thereby it's racist. Um, And then thirdly, um, apparently the policy of of self-defense does this not apply to black people, particularly, you know, as it relates to interactions with the police. Uh, So the idea that somebody busts in your home (laughs) unannounced, that you have a, and you have a legally uh, obtained weapon and you can't defend yourself and your girlfriend um and and that if you then shoot to defend yourself the police officers have a right to shoot and kill you yeah. um you know that policy so and then the attorney general uh whether they're white or black based on case law has the ability to essentially free these cops and you know so so all I'm talking about is all of these different policies, policing policies, case law policies, policies of where we're going to put all of them contributed to Breonna Taylor's murder and and her you know and so 
we need to recognize our communities, our institutions are governed by policies. And that's what we need to change. Yeah, I think so often we get caught up in the person and we're just like, mm-hmm. oh, if this person is a Democrat, then they have our best interests. And not really looking at the work that's being done or being like, oh, well, this person's a woman. So, of course, they're going to have they're going to think about women and, and protecting their bodies. And we see that time and time again, that representation is not just enough. It has to be the right kind of person, not just any person who looks like you. And so I'm wondering if you think, you know, going forward, if you think we are starting to move in a place where we're not, I don't want to say settling for, but we're not just as readily co-signing someone who looks like us and, and, and automatically assuming that they have our best interests at heart. So Black feminists um, have really, one of the ways in which I've learned from Black feminism Mm -hmm. is, you know, Black feminists for for decades have been saying that women can be patriarchal. Mm -hmm. And they specifically have been looking at the ways in which white women have been basically maintaining sort of patriarchy and sexism. Uh, Queer scholars have been saying for decades that, you know, queer people can be homophobic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 you know, one of the things that I'm arguing too is we need to distinguish racism, which is systemic, from racist, which is individual, and, and recognize that an individual of color can be a, an attorney general of a state and use his power or her power to essentially um, you know, not bring the killers of a black woman to justice. And we should not, if he's white, we shouldn't say he's racist. But then if he's black, he's, quote, not racist or can't be racist. It's, it's about the outcome of what people are doing or saying when it comes to racist, just as the same thing as, as relates to, you know, this, it's likely that that the, the Senate is going to confirm a woman to the Supreme Court who's going to take away women's rights. You know, and I, I think that it's critical for, for us and thereby be sexist, right? So basically, you know, appoint a sexist woman to the Supreme Court who's going to... Uh, and so I think it's important for us to sort of come to grips with that, that, that we have to really separate the identity of the person from the person's politics, from the person's actions, and we need to focus on actions. And, and I'm specifically... This is something that's specifically important for me because one of the things that I know as a black man is you have you you have black men who benefit from the fact that society due to its racism does not value the lives of black women. So they're able to serial kill black women, they're able to serial rape black women and they consciously know that and so they consciously prey on black women because they know they're not protected by the state. And so in other words, they're like, that is a racial group I can oppress. And, 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 and because we're not focused on the victims, because we're not seeing, whoa, this is a person who is preying on black women. And because we're focused on the perpetrator, <laughs> to determine sort of their sort of politic we're missing so many people sort of preying on the lives of, of people within their own racial group. 
Um, and, 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 and we're not we're missing the outrage that we should have. Yeah. And so, you know, thinking about Breonna Taylor and just Sandra Bland and countless black women whose lives are lost and, you know, for a moment people will really get, you know, there'll be this groundswell and they really will show up and then it just sort of dies down. Or in the case yeah. of Breonna Taylor, there's absolutely no justice has been served. And, you know, as a black woman, to me, it is, it's depressing. It just, in so many ways, it feels like no one cares about me. And, you know, I have a good life and I'm, I'm blessed and I haven't had any sort of really traumatic racial experiences happen, but I just seen on social media, seeing the video, seeing the meme, seeing just the countless, you know, sort of lack of rallying around black women who are subjected to violence and death at the hands of police or any other sort of white supremacy. It, I just kind of go, what is it going to take for society to give a damn when a white, oh, sorry, when a black woman is killed? And really show up for her in death. I just, I don't know. What what are you what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, I completely understand and, and it's certainly something that, you know, many of my black women sort of friends have, have expressed, um, you know, especially uh, you know, as it relates to Brianna Taylor and especially how, how they see um you know, I think it was extremely painful for them to see the combination of, of white men um, murdering Breonna Taylor and a, and a black man letting that those murderers go free. And so then it's like, who, you know, who is out here sort of protecting and, and valuing sort of my life? But I also think it's important. And I think one of the beauties about this year in particular is I've never I haven't in my lifetime seen so many people rally around and rally for a murdered black woman woman mm -hmm. in the way they they have rallied for Breonna Taylor. And and what I'm hoping is is that that becomes more of the norm because there have been mm -hmm. so many Breonna Taylors. Um and and because so that black women wouldn't feel <laughs> the way that, that 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 you do, and 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 um, but but I also know that the way racism and sexism sort of and certainly transphobia works in this country is one of the net effects of that is that you know black women in particular it's very difficult for people to see them as victims, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. and and that's why we have to sort of overcome our own conditioning um, and, and really see black women as the human beings that, that they are. And certainly as people who can be victims, just like anyone else. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm hoping that things will change. And I, I will agree with you that the way that people sort of really, the, how vocal people were about Breonna Taylor's death, it really was, I, I was surprised. I was like, wow, I've, I've been alive for 36 years. I've never seen that before for a black woman. And I just, I thought it was remarkable. And I, it makes me feel like maybe a new page is turning in society. Um, so sort of where, where, where's your head at now? Seven months into the quarantine with the Breonna Taylors and the George Floyds and sort of, what are you hopeful for? <laughs> I know it sounds funny to ask that, but I'm I'm curious, like, 
as someone who has been doing this work for so many years, you could sort of see the shift happening more so than I think that I can because I'm not in the work day in, day out. So is has there been any change outside of what we just previous, previously discussed about Breonna Taylor that has you feeling hopeful for the country going forward? So I, I am hopeful mm-hmm. that the awareness is there. But I do fear that if before the problem was a lack of awareness, that the new problem can be awareness, but we're just not willing to act. Mm. Um, and we're not willing, again, like we talked earlier, to support the big solutions. And because we are going to be in a situation in which we're going to have to make a choice, do we support those policies that can gradually reduce police violence? Mm -hmm. Or do we support the policies that can eliminate police violence? And and I think I want people to support policies that eliminate the racial racial inequities of our time, the racial injustices of our time. Yeah, and I feel like so many people are like, oh, well, it seems like it's just happening too fast. And do we have to defund? Do we have to eliminate? Can we rehabilitate? And for me, with my level of knowledge, I feel like rehabilitation doesn't really make sense when we have systems in place that have been designed to inflict harm and trauma on people. So rehabilitating that, how you can't rehabilitate that you have to eliminate that. And so I'm I'm trying to wrap my head around how can we get people more on board with eliminating or defunding? Is it just the language needs to be different? I, I've heard that like, well, let's not call it defunding the police. Let's call it something else. And I'm just sort of like, but it's the same thing. Even if you change the wording, it's still, we're trying to eliminate that. So I'm curious, what do you think needs to happen for more people to really, truly get on board? I'd say three things. I'd Mm -hmm. say first, people fear eliminating the police, even defunding the police, Mm -hmm. because they fear Black people. And so in their mind, the only thing that's keeping them between, the only thing that's keeping and protecting them from those Black dangerous beasts are the police. That if you eliminate the police, Black people just run ramshod all over this country. So you have that racist idea that people have, that racist fear that people have. Then you also have people who've been misled by police unions, by, um, you know, the sort of police industrial sort of complex, um, that the way in which you reduce violent crime is by increasing police and prisons. And so they're like, you know, of course we're going to like, why would we decrease the number of, why would we defund the police? Because then that's going to shoot up violent crime when there actually is not a relationship between the two. But people think there is because you have so-called law and order politicians claiming that there is. Um, And then finally, I, I, I think that in many ways, people, when they're 
thinking about, particularly those Black folks who are arguing for the police to be abolished, Mm -hmm. I think many people are not thinking about it from the perspective of Black people, and particularly Black people who understand the history and certainly understand their own personal history. In other words, for, for Black folks, it's it's very difficult to separate police from violence. Mm-hmm. So in other words, if you're Black and you, you know African-American history and you know the police have always been violent, generally speaking, to, to Black people, if in your own personal sort of history, you have experienced or witnessed you know, police violence time and again towards Black people, that your fear, you fear literally the police, then when you, when, 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 when Black folks say we need to abolish the police, what they're saying is the only way to abolish violence <laughs> is to abolish the police because they can't disconnect the two. Yeah. And, and so I think for somebody to think about it in that perspective, they're going to have to then, but they don't think that we should abolish the police it would be their job to prove to Black people <laughs> that you can have a police that's not going to be violent towards Black people because we just haven't seen it. Yeah. yeah. I know I haven't. Yeah. <laughs> um, before we o- open up uh, audience questions, my, my last question I have for you is your book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, is so impactful for so many people. And I really do feel like it is going to change a lot of people's mindsets. So what it, what makes you m- most proud about this book and the way that it's resonating and connecting with people from all walks of life? I think the biggest thing that makes me proud is, is people are sharing with me that they are in the process of, of, of transforming themselves, of, of recognizing, let's say, their anti-Blackness, of, of striving to be anti-racist, um, you know, and, and even have asked me sort of, okay, you know, I want to take the next step. I literally want to go on the same journey that you've went on, really excavating and understanding, you know, all of the different racist ideas that I have and I don't want to just do that for the sake of doing it. I want to mm-hmm. do that because I want to transform and revolutionize this society. And that's one of the reasons why we we decided, I decided to to, to produce a journal, mm-hmm. um, you know, be anti-racist, a, a guided sort of uh, a journal for, for awareness, reflection, and, and action, because it really simulates for readers of how to be an anti-racist. And even people who haven't read that book, precisely the journey that I took um, and I'm still taking, you know, to be anti-racist. Oh, that was, I love that. I, I can't wait to get the journal because I, I, I'm, I'm falling slowly back in love with journaling and writing my thoughts down because I think it's so easy to sort of walk through life and just go about your day and, and do your behaviors and not really think about what it is you're actually doing. So I'm I'm really excited for this journal. Okay. We have Wow, we have a lot of questions. So I'm going to try and and pick a few of my favorites. Okay, this is, oh, you know what? This is great. Let's start with this one because this is uh, very timely and it's rooted in um, last night's debate. So this is from Danielle. She writes, 
How does Ibram feel about Donald Trump signing an executive order claiming that anti-racism is the real racism? Dr. Ibram X. Kendi's work is so full of so much personal honesty and grace, as well as well-researched and argued points. He and we all deserve a president who is willing to read his work and see the truth in it. So I, I, I you know, obviously I wasn't, you know, I was outraged mm-hmm. for him to imagine that anti-racism is anti-American. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my response to, to him and, and my response to that construct is essentially he's saying that to be a, to be an American is to be racist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I think that so in order to agree with them, that's what you have to believe. You have to agree that um, that that we should not be challenging the status quo. And certainly it makes sense for me why he would boycott it or, you know, seek to root it out of the federal government or rooted out of the society because he traffics in racist ideas. That's the only way in which he's going to get people to vote for him, you know, yeah. is by getting them to support him because of his own racism. Yeah. Do you think that, um, cause I know there's a lot of, um, anti-racism sort of seminars popping up, whether it's in the workplace. And do you, do you feel as though those are going to be effective in the long run? Or what are your thoughts on those kind of seminars that HR departments like to, to host? It depends on how they're structuring them. Mm. And, and so if, for instance, if a company is having sort of um, training so that its workers can figure out what's wrong with them mm-hmm. and not also what's wrong with the company, <laughs> then that's not yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Um okay, so this is an interesting one. Um I like this question from Margo. She writes, "Can we work towards anti-racism without dismantling or at least challenging capitalism?" No. <laughs> um, you know, I write about them and yeah. how to anti-racist as the conjoined twins. They were born mm-hmm around the same time in the same place and they came of age together um, and um, have informed each other really from the beginning. Yeah. Do you ever think we will move as a society away from capitalism? I feel as though people have, you know, their knuckles are turning pink to hold onto the capitalism and making as much money as they can and just everyone out for themselves. You think we can get a, make a shift away from that or are we kind of a lost cause? I, I think we're at a time, I mean, there's an unprecedented number of Americans, particularly young Americans who are anti-capitalist and, mm-hmm. and because I think they recognize that this is just not a sustainable way to create um, equity and equality in, in a particular mm-hmm. society. And so the question is, this, you know, if you're saying that when you're 20, are you going to say that when you're 40, let's say, yeah. as well, or when yeah. you're 60? Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So, okay. This is from Anonymous. Um, Anonymous writes, what demand should I make for a situation with racist healthcare coworkers? How do I push for critical race theory slash anti-racist, anti-racist education? Um, no doubt every healthcare entity, entity should already be doing this, but they believe they are exempt 
by the nature of healthcare work. I know a lot of black people have to exist in white workplaces, but it's different when it's something like healthcare and the outcomes literally end in disability and death for us when there are racist providers in an already racist system. Ooh. So I can't even yeah. begin to answer that question in, in, a, in a precise way. But, mm-hmm. but what I will say is, is that I think the more that I learn what it means to be anti-racist, the more it opens up an ability for me to see what I need to fight for in my specific situation. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it feel you know when you think of healthcare, you think of doctors and nurses, and they are our heroes, and and they save lives, and that's true. But you know, I for one certainly never really thought about what they were taught or how they were educated. And then you you know you read statistics about how you know black women are more like who are pregnant are more likely to die during childbirth than you know white women. And you read about, you know, doctors having theories that black people don't feel pain and black women don't feel pain. Um, and it, it makes me sort of go, how will we even tackle health care? That feels like it feels as though if we were to sort of point out and really ch- challenge the more racist aspects within the healthcare system, there will be major pushback. Do you feel that that's true? Oh, without question. But there's so many people who are receiving poor care because of the color of their skin. There's so many people who literally are dying um, because of the color of their skin, because of where they live. And and so, like, you know, we need to revolutionize our healthcare system because in doing so, we can literally save, you know, potentially millions of lives. Yeah. Um, we just have a few more questions. Um, okay. This is from Lily and she's in Los Angeles. Um, she writes, I'm Blasian and white. It's been hard to talk to my white and Asian family about anti-blackness. Any tips? Ask them to have a reading group with you and, and just, you know, choose some books about anti-blackness, um, Or, you know, let it be a broad sort of topic and, you know, let them choose the books first. And then when it comes around to you, you choose a book, um, you know, on on anti-Blackness. And and that can be a springboard, um, you know, for you to have these conversations. Okay, good luck, Lily. I feel, you know, I feel like sometimes when there is this sort of resistance, it's really, and you, you wrote about this in the book, you know, people feel as though the label racist is the most detrimental thing that they could ever be called. And so that puts people on the defensive. So they might, you know, when you're trying to have these conversations, they might feel like you were just trying to find a way to call them racist rather than them sort of being open to the idea that they have to be reflective and sort of analyze their behaviors and unpack sort of the anti-blackness that may be at the root of those behaviors. I think that that's really hard to sort of do that kind of work. And like you said, it it takes a long time. And so I would say, Lily, just have patience. I think that's the biggest part is that racism isn't cured in one conversation one day. It's an ongoing, lifelong thing. So if they can be open to it, 
that's, I feel a huge step in the right direction, you know? Exactly. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, okay. So we have just, um, a couple more questions. Okay. So this is from JD who writes, how do you feel about people who exclusively date outside of their race? Is that self-hatred? It depends on the, it depends on the reason why. Mm. And so if, if let's say you have a, um, let's say you have a, a black person who was born and raised in a homogenous white sort of area, pretty much all their friends were white. Um, and, 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 you know, they, in many ways, you know, culturally, this, this is the culture that they understand. Um, and, and they're pretty much exclusively, let's say dating white men or white women. Um, then, you know, and it's because that that's sort of what they know. I, I think that's very different than another person who, let's say you're, you're a, a black male and you're only dating white women because you think black women are too difficult or you think black women, um, uh, that there's something wrong with black women, mm -hmm. then that is, uh, that is a form of, uh, you know, hatred towards black women. Yeah. Okay. And so then our last question is a, a really nice one. Um, this is from Joy in Los Angeles who writes, how do you find joy right now? Oh, I mean, I, I find joy in, you know, just in family and friends and even in the resistance. I mean, you know, people demonstrating that racism is a problem and resistance more broadly has always really brought me joy. That's great. And so I guess before I let you go, what are you looking forward to most in your work when it comes to anti-racism? Like what are you the thing, what is the thing that you're so ready to tackle next? Well, I'm just, I think, I mean, in addition to, I mean, this new journal, Be Anti-Racist mm -hmm. coming out, you know, um, I'm also excited really to be building this, the Boston University Center for Anti-Racist Research um, and, and, and really sort of working with an unbelievable group of colleagues to really tackle and address and, and eliminate racism and using research to do it. Well, that sounds amazing. And I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today um, so many people are so happy that this conversation is happening because people are mad, people are heartbroken, people are stressed, depressed, and really these kinds of conversations are think are the fuel to help people keep going and figure out how they can still show up in their lives and not be so, so overwhelmed by the overwhelming negativity that's in the world right now. So thank you so much. And I wish you all the success and, and love and light and everything amazing in the world. Um, you're, you're really a treasure. Thank you so much. Oh, well, well, thank you so much. Of course, you're a treasure as well and for your work. And yeah, thank you for having me on the show. Of course. Yay. Oh, babe, wasn't that a powerful conversation? I'm not gonna lie, it was heavy, mm -hmm. but very informative. It's what we and need. For sure, during these times. And I think I'm gonna go back and listen 
again mm. even though i've probably listened to it a hundred times while editing editing it mm-hmm. but i feel like there's so much to learn and his values are so they're all aimed in such a great direction to mm-hmm. resolve systemic racism mm-hmm. oh babe you're so cute <laughs> well that was a great conversation i feel inspired i feel like i learned some more I did almost tear up when we were talking about Breonna Taylor mm. and just how, you know, so many black women are just feeling like we don't matter in society because that is how I feel. And it's, it's, you know, I think my persona is so like, um, and not even like my persona, just who I am as a person. I could be really bubbly and have fun and blah, blah, blah. But just seeing Brianna <clears throat> and her family get no justice, yeah. it really just broke my heart and made me feel not like what's the point, but just like, damn, we are really, black women are really alone in it, this world. It does feel like that, mm-hmm. but I want to let you know you're not alone. Thanks, babe. I appreciate that. That was very tender. I think <laughs> we should just get to credits because I don't want to ruin this moment. Okay, so you guys, if you're watching the YouTube video, which you should, Okay, Ava DuVernay is directing. (laughs) She definitely is not. We can't afford her. (laughs) Hey, Ava. (laughs) But this cute shirt that I'm wearing, it's a Love and Basketball, one of my favorite romantic dramas. The uh, Maxwell sensual scene. Uh Babe, you haven't seen it yet. We'll watch it together, but it's so iconic. And I was like, Is it like waiting to exhale? No, it's different. It's like, is this what sex is going to be like for me? When I watched it as a teenager, that's what I was wondering. Those sex scenes in Waiting to Exhale were wild. No, you're thinking about, no, you fell asleep of Waiting to Exhale. You're thinking about how Stella got her groove back when Angela Bassett no. was getting it in the shower. The I'm thinking digs. of. Lying on a bed in their lingerie and the sweat just dripping off his body after they were doing it. Wait, you're still thinking about this? I think we got off track here. (laughs) I think we should go back to what you were initially. It's gotten warm in here all of a sudden. Wage exhale like a full month and a half ago. Oh, longer than that, I think. <laughs> okay. But so this is a super cute t-shirt that I got. Love and basketball. And it's by this place, Nuance, but it's spelled fun. So um, let me give you the what is it when you, sp- you spell it out for people with like this letter is for what what is that called? Phonetic alphabet. Oh uh, yeah, phonetic alphabet. Okay, so you can follow. You looked at me like, are you stupid? We're going to need to do like our own little segment now. Mm -hmm. It's just clips of you expelling things out with your own alphabet. Yeah, great. I'm down for that. Okay, so this place is called, their Instagram handle is Shop Nuance. And that is S as in Sherpa. H as in High Top. I'm just going to go make a cup of tea. I'll be back in a minute. S as in Sherpa, H as in High Top, O as in Opulence, P as in Penicillin, K as in Knives, 
N as in nuisance, E as in exceptional, W as in wizard, A as in alternative rock. That was a stretch. <laughs> N as in. Letters beginning with N. Mm, navigate. C as in cornucopia. And E as in Eric. <laughs> <laughs> and as always, the link is in the description below. Yeah, so you go to their Instagram, shop nuance, shopnuance.com if you want to go old school. Same spelling. Same spelling. S as in <laughs> S as in We don't need we've we've got it. Do people have it? I feel like they don't have it. They definitely have it. Credit time. Hosted by Phoebe Lynn Robinson. Produced by Phoebe Lynn Robinson and Fresh Bagel. Edited by Fresh Bagel. Theme song by Gavin Turek. Interns, Sasha and Malia. Thanks for listening, guys. <laughs> Love you guys. Bye.